Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, September 6th. I can't believe I have to get used to saying September. It feels like Monday, but it's not. We're here live, and it is time for the Power Hour. We're going to open the phone lines right now, so jump in and join us. If you've got a question, a comment, a topic, anything at all to do with maintenance, engines, performance, modifications, troubleshooting, emissions, electronics, fuel economy, you name it, we'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and join us. We'll hear from the team from Pittsburgh Power, and then we'll get to your calls and questions. So line them up. They're starting to come in right now, 855 855- Nine five zero three eight three five. I'm gonna jump right in and uh, bring in the team. Bruce, looks like you're first up today. Welcome back. Thank you, Kevin. As always, it's our pleasure. So, what's on your mind this week? Um, well, I had a gentleman uh, last week whose floor on his, I think it's a Volvo, is getting too hot. He said the exhaust pipe's too close to it. So uh, we do have header wrap, which is used in the race car industry and racing motorcycles to wrap headers. And if you wrap the exhaust pipe, it does a couple things. It keeps the heat flowing through the pipe and uh, it keeps or uh, in, let me think now, how do I want to say this? The piston has to push the exhaust out through the turbo, through the pipes, through all the emissions equipment, and or through the muffler. And by keeping the exhaust hot, it flows easier. As the exhaust cools down, it slows down. It's harder for the engine to push it out. So this header wrap will help keep the exhaust flowing. Bruce, let, and that let, also keeps the uh, floor cooler. Yeah, let, let's talk about that for a second, because this kind of like getting back to the basics again. And what we're talking about here is back pressure. It's what we refer to in an engine that has mm-hmm. back pressure. You were saying the piston has to push that air out. It's got all these obstacles, bends, the turbo. And the harder it has to push to get that air through the exhaust, the less power gets transferred to the wheels. So you have less power making it to the ground. You're using more fuel. So where did, in a, there are some engines, I remember when we raced two-stroke motorcycles, back pressure was really important, but you had to have a certain amount of back pressure to make that engine run properly. We used to design the exhaust with what they called expansion chambers, and it was the size and shape of that expansion chamber that would determine the back pressure on the engine. I can remember a friend of mine, we were racing motorcycles back then, we were kids, and he thought it would be cool to drill holes in his exhaust pipe because it sounded loud. Well, it ran horrible because he had changed the back pressure on that engine. I've heard over the years, I've heard people say that diesel engines require back pressure. Where did that thought ever come from? Yeah, that's that's a misnomer because the turbocharger creates back pressure. In fact, on a non-emissions engine, if you're at 30 pound of boost, you're probably at 35 pounds of back pressure in the exhaust manifold. So, but some salespeople at dealerships have told people that you have to have that back pressure, and that's absolutely not true on a four-stroke engine. 
Yeah, on a on a four stroke diesel, we want that we want the lowest back pressure possible. That's going to make that engine run more efficiently. Correct. Whenever I was uh, years ago playing with different size turbine housings, we would drill and tap the exhaust manifold and come off of it with three feet of copper tubing and then into a union and then into plastic tubing through the firewall into a boost gauge. And with that boost gauge mounted in the exhaust manifold, we would drive the truck, hopefully loaded on the rolling hills, and look Whenever we're cruising along the level and we're at five, eight, or ten pounds of back pressure or ten pounds of turbo boost, we wanted to be less on the back pressure. Oh, I see. Then, okay. Every, okay. So let's say you're pulling a slight grade and you're at fifteen pound of boost. We wanted that back pressure to be twelve or thirteen. On the dead level, if you were at eight or ten, we wanted to see the back pressure between four and five. As low as we could get it. Now, the yeah, I was just going to say when the you larger say, we went with the turb. When you say back pressure in this context, are we really saying that's how much boost the engine itself is producing before the turbocharger? That's how many pounds of pressure are in the exhaust system before the turbo. Okay. So when you're up at 30 or 35 pound of boost, it's not unlikely to have 45, 50 pound of back pressure in the engine. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's the, what you have to be careful with turbochargers. Some people want that quick response and the quicker the response, yeah, the faster you can leave the traffic light and the better you accelerate in traffic. However, you put the strain on the drivetrain and on the drive tires and you can have a great bottom end and a fair mid-range, but you lose your top end because you just have way too much pressure in the engine. You're better off to have a great mid-range and a great top end and just ease up the clutch a little easier and roll into the throttle a little easier. That way we get more of it rid of the we get rid of more of the back pressure in the engine. There you go. All right. Good stuff. So I would, you took that several steps further. I was just wanted to talk about keeping the floor cold, but there's, there's also another way. If you take two exhaust clamps and put them so the bolt side is up in the air and put a couple of nuts on it and take an aluminum plate and drill through it and put it on there, you make a heat shield that is between your floorboard and your exhaust pipe, and you can even curve it to them. I have the heat uh, roll off of it to keep it out of the cab. That's a good idea. What a simple way to do that, too. Yeah. Very simple. Yeah, I like that. The other thing is I was helping a fellow with gearing on a T800 with an ISX of 2013, and he came up with a cutoff that has disc brakes and 253 gear ratio. I never heard of a 253 gear ratio. 253. Yeah. There's so many new ratios out there now that everybody's doing their own rear ends and their own drive lines. It's hard yeah. to keep up with yeah. them. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's, he's going to buy that, and hopefully we'll have a report in a couple months on how the 253 works and then and make sure that it is actually a 253. Yeah. yeah. And 
The third thing I had, you know, I've been fixing things around the house and in various places with O-rings. Well, this past week, my blender, the buttons, some of them don't want to work and they don't, they'll stick in or they won't go in at all. And what I've done in the past, like when the blades in the blender get tight, you don't want to put oil on them or penetrating oil because, I mean, your food's in there. So I take Pam, the spray grease for yeah. cooking, yeah, and I spray it around the blades and turn them and turn them and let it sit on there. Well, today I took that blender and I put the buttons facing up and I just soaked them with the Pam. And I let it sit there for about a half hour, 45 minutes, and came back, wiped the ex- excess off, and the buttons were perfect. Bruce, you're messing with the system. They don't want you fixing anything anymore. You're supposed to throw it away and get a new one. I know. It brought me back in memories of when we used to rebuild water pumps. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oil pumps, uh, oil coolers, after coolers. There wasn't a part on the big cam that we couldn't rebuild. And they didn't want you to do that, so they kept lowering the price of recon water pumps and things like that, and making it harder to get the parts and the impellers, the bearings, the shaft, and the seal. So, uh, anyway, we've all got away from that. starters and alternators. Look how many starters and alternator shops we had when we were young, and now they're hard to find. Yeah. Well, we talked about this one other time. There used to be TV repair shops and shoe repair shops everywhere. Those don't really <laughs> exist much anymore. And when I see a shoemaker in my area, I make note of that because if you buy a good shoes, uh, you need to have the heels and soles done and because the shoes are not a throwaway. Yeah. yeah. That's all I've... I have for today, sir. All right. And, uh, did you get that board up in the air? I did. Or up in the water? I did. I got up on the board. I didn't get up on the foil. I'm going to blame it on the fact that mm-hmm. I, I didn't have quite enough wind for the, the size of wing I'm using. I'm going to go buy another wing already. I'm going to buy a bigger one uh, for those low wind days. Because the, the worst part is when you don't have enough wind. Imagine. So think about this, Bruce. This is kind of like... You know, you've been behind a boat your whole life, been water skiing your whole life. I did. I played around with the wakeboard when those became popular. This is like riding the board and driving the boat at the same time. You have to do both because the wing, Mm -hmm. you got to fly that wing to keep enough power to keep you moving so that the board works. So flying the wing is kind of like driving the boat. And then I have to ride the board itself on a foil, which is new. I mean, I've never done this whole foil thing. So, yeah, I got up on the board, and I was standing, and I probably went, oh, 100 yards a couple times. But you're just, you're dragging on that board. If you can't get that thing up on the foil, the board just has way too much drag through, and you're just struggling with it. And so I I figured, well, I kind of got it. If I get another good wind day, or I'll go get another kite. So I, I, uh... I now have to take one of my own lessons. You know, I tell people all the time, if you own trucks, you know, you should have a shop and you should have a relationship with them. You're going to need them at some point. Um, I've already built a relationship with a, uh, a wing repair shop. <laughs> my wing's in the shop already. I tore it all up. Wow. They're, they're super. You tore up the wing. Yeah, they're super, super thin material. 
I'm sure it's like parachute material, that kind of stuff, really thin. And you want a lot of wind to get up on the foil. But that wind is brutal when you don't know what you're doing because the waves are pounding you in the water. You're trying to get your kite flipped back over and you're fighting the wind. Once you know what you're doing, all that stuff's easy. But when you're a beginner, you're just fighting with all of that stuff. So I had been out... Uh, I was probably at about four hours working on it. So I was pretty tired and I was getting too much sun and I was coming in to cover up some, my head with something for the sun and I was going to go back out. I didn't want to give up. I just wanted to stick with this till I got up on the foil and the wind was starting to pick up. So I'm like, all right, I think I can do this. So when you come into the shore, they've got these little anchor points so you can tie your board up and you can tie your wing up because you can't, these things catch so much wind. You can't leave your wing laying around. It's got to be secured all the time. So I tie up the board, but we're in such shallow water that you have to flip the board upside down. So your foil is now sticking straight up in the air. And these foils mm-hmm. have really sharp edges. They call them the guillotine. Um, and you, you wonder, if I, cr- if I get a really spectacular crash and get tied up with my board... It would be bad. These things have sharp edges on them. So I'm standing wow. there and I tie off the board to this anchor point. I'm, you know, waist deep in water and I'm holding onto my wing. Well, I made the cardinal mistake on the wing. You always hold the wing from the front. When you're holding it to front, no matter how strong the wind is, it just, they call it feathering out. The wing just hangs there in the air and it, there's no tension against it but if you grab a hold of that back handle you just created the the sail and the wind catches it so you never grab that back handle until you're ready to go well i'm just standing there and i don't know what i was thinking i grabbed the back handle the wind caught it ripped it completely out of my right hand and the, the my wing went against my foil with all those sharp edges and I heard it tear as soon as it hit it. So I panic and I reach up and I try to pull it back. Well, you can't pull that wing against the wind. All I managed to do was get it a little bit off the foil and then the wing ripped it out of my hand and it tore again three times. I tore the wing before I could finally I figure out the hard way. I know I finally figured out how to get it off the foil. So I immediately just, Here's how big of an issue this is in Hood River. There are places where you don't even have to talk to anybody. It was after hours. It was a holiday weekend. You just drive up. They have lockers outside. You fill out some paperwork, scan a code with your phone, stick your wing in the locker, and they send you an email when it's fixed. I think mine's going to be done today or tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. So, already tore it up. <laughs> Well, I had a call this morning. Can we get brand new 18-speed transmissions? And yes, we can get brand new 18-speed. Well, I guess that's good, but who would want one? Uh, Just kidding. Matt sent me a uh, (laughs) Matt sent me a text. He has two 53 rear ends. He got them out of a 2016 truck. Yeah, look at that. Yeah. Yep. Tell him that Texas what his RPM is. At uh, in direct gear at sixty five miles an hour. I'm sure he's listening right now. He'll text that to me any second. I'm gonna know it's sixty, sixty five, and seventy. All right. You got anything else, Bruce? 
That's it. I have one more quick thing for you, just because you and I have talked about this. You mentioned that um, your chiropractor was the first one to tell you not to get the jab, and I was the second. Mm-hmm. You know, the, they, they have a new jab out now. The FDA just approved it. This is supposed to cover the BA4 and BA5 variant because that's all there is anymore. But yet they left the original virus in there, too. I'm not sure why, because that one doesn't even seem to exist anymore. But here's the thing. This one should be pretty safe. They've tested it on eight mice. Mm. That's the extent of the testing, by the way. That's it. By the way, a lot of people. A lot of people that have all the shots and all the boosters are sick right now. Yeah, they are. But some of them are dying. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's uh, let's hear from the rest of the team. Pete and Leroy should be on this line. Good morning, guys. Morning. Hello, Kevin. All right. Who wants to be up first today? I'm going to let you guys choose. Okay. I'll go first. All right. Uh, just a couple of things. First thing is on the catalyst, the maximized catalyst. There's there's not a shelf life on it. And we've spoke about this before. It will turn dark. Um, sometimes you'll get some settlement from it, but there's not really a shelf life. But what we're seeing is that the bottles actually have a shelf life. Um, they're starting to have what we call paneling, where they're starting to suck in, um, which hasn't caused too much. It hasn't really caused a problem but it potentially could. Uh, we just ran into one problem with a five-gallon bucket where it is a year old. It sucked in and it developed a, a small crack on it. So if you're going to buy the catalyst, try to keep it or use it within a year. Uh, if, and if you do have the five-gallon bucket and it hasn't been opened, open it to help prevent it from sucking in. Okay, you just said something that uh, I was dealing with this morning. So you said open it so it doesn't suck in. What causes that to happen, the sucking in? I don't know. I mean, there's some sort of chemical reaction occurring. So here... These are fluorinated bottles. Got it. I think it's, you know, if you had... Oil in there, when pace, I think it's the, the catalyst causing it. Got it. Here's why I ask. This has nothing to do with the catalyst. Something that weird happened, and I just had somebody over here this morning, and I think we figured it out. So a couple months ago, um, I walk into my pantry, and I have a big walk-in pantry because I cook a lot, and there are a couple rugs in there. And I'm walking across one of the rugs in my bare feet, and it's wet. I'm like, where's that coming from? And it's not water, it's oil. I've got oil all over my feet. The entire rug is completely soaked. I'm like, where did that come from? I had a five-gallon tote of avocado oil sitting on the floor. And it had been in there for months at least. And I had used some, so it had been opened. And then the lid gets put on it. And it's like a... You know, the, the a tote with a built-in handle. It's got a big cap and a pour spout. And I looked at that oil the entire plastic jug had collapsed on itself and forced all of the oil out through the cap. It was a mess. Five gallons. I mean, every bit of four gallons, I had a little bit left in the jug. Four gallons of oil makes a mess. Well, yesterday, Lisa's down in the basement. She calls me down there and she said, what happened down here? 
I said, what do you mean? And there were some cardboard boxes in a storage room down there. They are totally soaked, completely soaked. And again, I'm thinking water, but we're looking at it. We're like, that doesn't look like what water would do to a cardboard box. It was the oil. The oil had seeped down through the floor and came in through a crack in the foundation in that basement. And then all the boxes just sucked it all up. Wow. But what causes that plastic container to collapse like that? I think it's just the uh, pressure on the outside, like ambient pressure is higher than what's the pressure on the inside. So it's actually the atmosphere pushing the bottle together. Weird. So like, you know how like if you put gas, gas can and it gets hot and it expands and makes the gas can bigger. Think of it, how it happens in reverse. Like if you, like say, let's say we bottled it here in Pennsylvania and then we send it to Mount Everest. Or, or no, it'd be the other way. Other around. way around. You know what I mean? Yeah, Where the outside right. pressure is higher. Right. So if, when I lived at, inward. well, you know, we have this issue in trucking. You realize if you take a load of certain things like potato chips, um, you aren't allowed to go over certain passes. That's in the, it's part of the instruction because they fill those bags with, I don't know, nitrogen or something. There's some inert gas in there that keeps things fresh. But when you go over the passes, those things will expand so much they explode. Yeah, I was in Whole Foods in Frisco last winter and they had a bunch of bags that had exploded of different foods. And Frisco is about 8,500 feet, maybe 8,000 feet altitude. They had a a great sale on exploded bags. (laughs) So, Leroy, I think that's what you're saying. They put a certain amount of pressure inside the bag because they use that inert gas. And then when you get up to altitude, there's not enough pressure outside the bag, right? Yeah, that would explode the bag. Yeah. Mine was the opposite. Yeah, the bag didn't difference. explode, it sucked in. So you're right. The pressure on the outside of that container had to be more than the pressure on the inside. Yeah, so I mean temperature can probably, you know, change yeah. a lot of that. In the house though, it should be I, I I know you would think it was so consistent. How would right. How would that happen? It's just bizarre. How was bottled too though. I guess. And like I said, the bottle had been open. We had used a little bit out of it. The other thing was avocados oil is really expensive. To lose five gallons of it sucked. Not to mention the mess that it cleaning it up. Oh, it was a mess. Yeah. Actually, luckily, the one rug that was in there soaked up most of it. So all I had to do was pick up that rug, put it in a trash bag and get it out of there. Yeah. All right. I have a catalyst question. I have a catalyst statement. All right. A friend of mine, retired anesthesiologist, has a 2021 A8L Audi. We were riding in it the other day, and it seemed sluggish starting out. Go like hell whenever you really give it a lot of throttle. It's 450 horsepower. But it just was sluggish going up through the gears. And I said, let me put the 18 cc's of catalyst in and let's stop off the tank and it took about two miles and he said oh my god what a difference on the response just starting out 
and, and I was riding in a car and I could tell that. Interesting. So there it is, a, 20, a 2021 A8 L Audi. I noticed a difference in my 2013, but his is a 21. So works in a lot of different applications. There you go. Pete, you got anything else? Okay. So one other thing I saw um, over the weekend is reading on my phone uh, the electric trucks that are out or about to be out. Um, so right now there's I think eight of them. Tesla, which isn't out yet. Freightliner, which has been around for a while. Uh, Volvo. Uh, KW is finally coming out with one. Peterbilt. Um, there's one from China, BYD. I mean, there's actually 100 units of the in the United States running, which kind of shocked me. I wonder if that um, company Bush is running them. Too, it, wonder if they're affiliated with the company Too Simple. That's the big Chinese company that's doing all the uh, autonomous trucks in the Southwest. I think they're running a bunch of appliances from like Arizona to California. I think. Yeah, I mean, another reason not to drink Anheuser Busch if they're buying Chinese trucks. <laughs> that's just my opinion. <laughs> there, uh, you, there you go. That stuff swill anyway. It, it is, you yeah. know, and the, the miles is only 167 miles or 167 uh, miles of, of range, which really isn't much. Oh, that's awful. Even for a local oh, truck. Yeah, that's awful. Mm -hmm. Who would even bother with a truck like that? Yeah. Same with Peterbilt and KW range is 150 miles. My God, Tesla's talking about 500 miles on 600, I think they've even claimed on the bigger one. And they always claim a little more than you're ever going to get. And there's a bunch of variables. But if, if Tesla's claiming somewhere between five and 600, and then another 80% of that with just a 30-minute charge, I did the math. If they're right, you wouldn't have to have a ton of charging stations around. They'd have to be placed strategically. But if you can do 500 miles on your first charge, and then we have to take a 30-minute break every day anyway, and you get another, what, 400 miles out of that, that's way more miles than a single driver can do in a day anyway. But why are they putting out trucks with like 200 miles or less range? They're almost worthless. Exactly. Now, Tesla's claiming 300 to 500, and even at 300, it's not bad. Um, they did not give a charge time. Um, the Freightliner's 250 miles. Um, it'll go 80% charge in an hour and a half. Ooh. Yeah, Volvo's 275, 80% charge in an hour. So, I mean, it's a little bit of uh, time there. But I guess... If you're running local, like right now, a lot of these are in um, California's where they're running them. Oregon are uh, running local um, deliveries. That Pepsi's using them, FedEx and stuff like that. So they could kind of get away with that small, short range. But for anything else, like the the Packard products, why would you even attempt to buy one of them? Well, you know, even if you're running local, nobody puts a 50 gallon fuel tank on. I mean, just put the bigger tanks you can. You've got room. Why would you limit yourself like that? And to build an electric truck with that small of a range just seems crazy to me. And why are Tesla's and, and numbers so much better? 
the um, well, they they claim a lot of things. So. Well, they do, but and for the most part, they're fairly close. You, all you have to do is take their claim and know that that is the best case scenario you're ever going to get. Everything has to be perfect to get their numbers, but they're they're usually you can usually say their numbers are pretty close as long as everything goes right. Then you have to start making all the adjustments. If it's colder, you have more hills, more weight, then those numbers can drop pretty quickly. But here's my thing. If their range drops that quickly, what's going to happen to a truck that only has a 200 mile range to start with? It's going to get worse. I mean, it's going to be severe conditions, extreme cold. Right. Would be one. Yeah. Does extreme heat affect them? I think both heat and cold cold affects batteries. Yeah, I think both heat and cold. Heat, not as much, I don't think. But I'm sure there's an effect. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll see there. Have you felt a scene? Have you seen how um, many tons of earth have to be moved to be able to get enough lithium to make one battery for a Tesla? This, the battery thing, we're going to have to come up with some sort of new battery technology, like the solid state batteries that they're working on that don't need all these crazy exotic metals. And uh, yeah, this whole idea that, we're moving to electric vehicles because it's green and it's good for the environment. I think that's total bullshit. I think it could be far worse for the environment if we don't find some new battery technology. And here's the other crazy thing that, that nobody's really talking about yet. The battery issue is new. We would not be mining all these crazy heavy metals and lithium and and all those things if we didn't need all these batteries. That's really bad for the environment. I'm pretty confident that will change eventually. But why are we pushing for these cars now? Why don't we wait till we do get better battery technology? Because this is not good for the planet. But then on top of that, you've got to mine to get these chemicals and heavy metals out of the ground at some point you have to dispose of this battery so now we have a disposal issue with all of these chemicals and heavy metals and on top of that we're charging these electric cars like 85 percent of that charge is coming from coal our dirtiest fuel all good points why do we think this is going to clean up the environment right now it's going to make everything worse And they never talk about recycling the battery. No. It never comes up in the subject. No, we know how much damage we do mining to get the stuff to build the battery in the first place. But what are we going to do with all of these batteries? Do something with them. And you can't charge them in the West now. So they want you to have them out in California. (laughs) That is is so stupid. And you set your thermostat to 78 degrees to conserve energy. Yeah. Well, I'm okay that's with that. House. No, that's... 68 is... Yeah, now, 68 in the summertime. That's freezing. No, 60... We that, hoodie on in my office. That, that's daytime. Night 58 is where we should be at night. 
Just, just sleep outside then. <laughs> I, in the wintertime, I do. I just leave my doors open so it's nice and cool in the wintertime. I like sleeping in the cold. Uh, I need to move now. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I'm looking for that. Uh, I'm looking for that. Uh, it was on Facebook of what it takes to um, how much, how many tons of earth have to be moved to get for any of that stuff yeah. iron ore I mean yeah. hundreds of tons to get a small oh, yeah. amount of iron any of those minerals oh, it's crazy I think Cummins is on the right page with the hydrogen they're looking at a um, hybrid of some sort I, I think that might solve a lot of the, the problems we have you know here's I'm kind of mixed on that um, certainly when we add hydrogen, we're going to be able to extend our range, but we also have to build hydrogen stations. And ultimately, I'm convinced that at some point we will be pure electric. When we get a really good battery technology like solid state, we'll bypass all those alternative fuels and we'll go pure electric. I, I believe that at some point. Do we... Does it make sense to build out a whole network of hydrogen stations all around the country? Uh, what about, they say, in western Texas, we have enough oil for the next 200 years. Oh, I, Why are we so worried about it right now? We shouldn't be. And nobody is saying we're doing this because we're going to run out of oil, though. That, that was what they were saying in the 70s. And guess what? They were completely wrong. Remember that? In the 70s, we were going to run out of gas. We were done. They had the predictions. We're mm -hmm. good, the world's going to run out of oil. We're toast. So that's why they wanted to conserve back then, because they thought we were going to run out. Well, they were really, really wrong. Not just a little wrong. Really, really wrong. There are places like Colorado is supposed to have enough oil to last us a thousand years or something. All we have to do is figure out how to get it out of the shale. And we will. We, all, we already know how. It's just too expensive right now. So there's, there seems to be no danger whatsoever that we would run out of oil. That doesn't seem to be the issue at all. This is the stupid environmentalist. And guess what? They're going to be wrong again. How many times have they told us the East Coast is going to disappear? Florida is going to be underwater. I just read another article this morning. They claim there's some island that people are living on. And, you know, within a couple of years, that island's going to 90 percent of the land's going to disappear. It, they've been making these predictions forever. Can anybody show a coast anywhere in the world that has moved much? When you look at the measurements, they're talking in inches still. Yeah. Of the ocean, you're talking about uh, the rising seas? Yeah. yeah, they've been claiming the, the, the ice caps are all melting and that's going to drive the sea levels up and Florida is going to disappear. And But you can, yeah. I've seen... Dozens of examples where they show a picture of a coastline from the 1940s and they show that same coastline today and nothing has moved. And when they measure that, they're measuring it in inches. How do you even measure that? So I, I just don't think That's there's right. any danger that anything's flooding anytime soon. Yeah. And there would be a good side to it. 
if it happens enough, we could get rid of California. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> Shame we need them like we do because this is really, a, you know, they, they want you to buy electric cars and you can't charge them. And now they're fighting with, um, you know, the law is going to pay their workers 22 bucks an hour now. If you have a, a chain over 100 stores, you now have to pay more money than somebody that has a couple stores, you know, a couple fast food joints. Yeah, which is ridiculous. That's not a free market. Hey, back to engines. We still have those two C16 cats. I've got a guy to call today. There's um, ones with less than 200 hours on them. They're are out of um, gen sets. Maybe Leroy could uh, talk a little bit on what we've done to convert that one to make it be an on-highway engine. Hey, Leroy, before you tell yeah, us about so the, that, I, I, have, I have one question. Can you okay. can you make it fit in my coach? Yes, we yeah, can. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you might just have to get like a funk bed, but you just get the top. Oh, there <laughs> you go. Got it. No, his C thirteen would have the same dimensions. His, his twins on it too, so this would be a little bit easier, a little yeah, cleaner. Easy huh? job. We really just need just a. And that's the yeah. thirteen, it'll be fine. There you go. Okay. Uh, hey, hey, Bruce, but, I got uh, some. I got some numbers back from Matt here. Oh, he's. You know what? Though okay. he, he's in the queue. He's going to talk about it. He's on the. He just sent me a text. He's in the queue. So we'll wait until we bring him on and we'll talk about it. Okay. All right. Well, the calls are starting to pile up. Are we done? Anybody have anything else important we have to talk about? Not that anything we've talked about so far is all that yeah, important. But... Nope. All right. Okay. Nope. Let's get to some questions then. I'm gonna we're gonna jump in with Matt. Uh Matt, what are you oh no. Oops, sorry. That was the wrong Matt. Let me press the right, but we got two Matts on. Um, I was wondering what Matt was doing in Michigan. He's never in Michigan. He's in Minnesota. Matt, welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, good afternoon, gentlemen. That's funny how well I know your... I've been to Michigan. <laughs> I, I know. It's funny how well I know your routes. I started to say Matt in when it was Michigan. I'm like, wait a minute. That can't be Matt. He's not in Michigan. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, so what yeah, do you got for us? I have us? to speed up to get your numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't normally drive that fast. Um, yeah, so yeah, my I know average, you don't, but... <laughs> uh, my average speed is 57 in direct. I run at 1250 RPM. 1250? Yeah. Yep. Okay, and what is 60. it at 65? Uh, so 60 was 1300. 1,300. 65, 1425. Okay. And 70 is 1540. And then when I go into 12th gear, my first overdrive drops down to 1320 at 70. And yeah, I did the thing my truck i did a complete cutoff so i changed the whole suspension from the old eight bag 
and it was mm-hmm. a, a 2016 Kenworth truck that it, the cutoff came from with the 253s. Okay. Interesting. It's a good gear ratio. Yeah. Good. Yeah, and that, uh, Joel has talked a lot about a 247 in the Volvos that they spec, which, you know, 247 to 253 is so close. almost impossible to measure yeah. the difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually, for the speed I run, it's perfect. You know, it really is a nice extension of what we've been doing with 264s. Gives us just even a little bit more room down there. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the 264 is perfect. You know, I used to, in the 379 beat, back when fuel was high in 08, I mean, we were, that was the 54 mile an hour club. Yeah, right. That was perfect. Yeah, exactly. And it was okay up to 60. Anything over 60, you're, in my opinion, you're getting out of the RPM range, at, you know, different engines. Well, you got a little bit more room, but you know the other the other difference yeah, we we need to be aware of in the older trucks, and that's now different with the newer trucks. The older trucks with the traditional drive lines, the thirteen speeds, the eighteen speeds, the legacy transmissions, we know we lose about three or four percent when we go into an overdrive gear. So. If you're trying to make up fuel mileage by getting your RPMs down, you're wiping out all the savings because um, the gear racers just aren't working right. And you've lost that efficiency through the drive line. So it's kind of a wash. I mean, if you go into overdrive to get your, your RPM down, you gain a little bit of fuel economy, you lose it because of the inefficiency. These new drive lines, they're claiming only about a 1% loss when you go into an overdrive gear. They're so much more efficient. So that's why we're able to spec slightly differently now and, and get gains on these newer trucks that we can't get on the older trucks. Yeah, and my biggest, a lot of this is just opinion because, you know, one truck, I can't prove something. But uh, I had 308 before I did this conversion. So I was running in 12th gear all the time. Right. I think in a double countershaft transmission, that single overdrive one gear down is not efficient at all. It doesn't I seem to be. I 50 degrees on my transmission. Wow. When I drop down to direct. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we, that, that overdrive gear, it, it's, we know it's a, a torque uh, divider. We end up with less torque when we go into an overdrive gear and we're turning more shafts. We have a bunch of oil churn. Those, those transmissions just aren't efficient in overdrive gears. The new ones are though. Yeah, the so the I, new transmissions are yep. really, really efficient in their overdrive gear. Yeah. And I believe even the, the new Eaton transmission, the endurance engineering status, that's what they're calling it. Yeah, I think that, so. That is a single counter shaft also, I believe. Yeah, I think all the new modern modern auto shifts are becoming a lot more efficient. Um, so, um, just one uh, quick book recommendation. I don't want to go into politics today, but you guys talking about uh, electric trucks and the environment and oil and coal and all that. Uh, I'm halfway through this new book 
fossil future by Alex. So I can't remember his last name right now, but um, pretty interesting. A lot of interesting stuff in there. I will go get it because this seems to be a uh, topic that um, I've been working on. Alex Epstein is the author. So, yeah, I'm going to get this on my Kindle right now. Looks interesting. Epstein, that's a pretty popular name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't believe there's any relation, but I don't know. Who knows? That's all I have for today. All right, that's all we need. Thanks for the call. Let's... uh, Make sure I press all the right buttons here. Uh, Interesting. um, We were talking about batteries and what are we going to do with all these batteries. And I remembered that I had bookmarked an article the other day that I wanted to read. I didn't get to yet. Uh, So I just pulled it up and I, I don't have time to read the whole thing. But basically, here's what they're saying in this article, that there's a huge rush right now all over the globe to start building recycling plants for these batteries. They know it's coming. It it actually sounds like we're planning ahead. But here's what they're saying. The problem is they're going to build the factories right now. They kind of have to. They're already starting to build these factories around the world. And their prediction is that they're going to get all these facilities built and there isn't going to be enough batteries to recycle soon enough. And they're, they're saying the whole recycling industry is going to be a mess for a couple of years because of this. Why are we pushing this so hard when it's causing so many problems across the board? It doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. And look, I don't think there are many people out there that are as excited about as electric as I have been. I've been a huge proponent. I think the vehicles are going to be awesome when we get them right. I love some of the tools and the things we have now. But there are also some big, big problems with this transition. And we don't seem to be taking any of that into account. We just seem to be full steam ahead. Yeah, there's no like transition period where we have hybrids for a while. I mean, we've had hybrids, but they haven't been great and they're not popular. No, they more of a transition period. Exactly. And I can remember a time I can remember a time when like the Honda Accord, for example, you could buy the standard Accord or you could pay ten thousand dollars more to get the hybrid and you got one more mile per gallon. That was it. Yeah, that's not good. No, it was stupid. And you got all those parts in there and it's complicated. And I, we are just screwing this up completely. We're making a mess of this whole thing. And I don't, you know, it it has to be about money. This has to be about crony capitalism. Think of all the money that's going to be made on all these new companies. And uh, there's a lot of money out there that's going to be made on this. Did you see what it costs to change the battery in a Chevy Bolt? You know, I saw something and then I saw a bunch of articles that said that's not true. Um, so I don't know if it, 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 there is no doubt it's going to be really, really expensive to replace batteries. We, we just have to realize that it's going to be a lot of money. I mean, t- just think about, right, think about this. I 
have been talking about replacing the batteries on my coach since I took this last trip. I still haven't done it. It's not, I can't get it into the shop yet, but I'm going to have to replace my batteries on the coach. Now, these batteries don't run the coach. They're just there for the air conditioning and all the other stuff. Those batteries are $6,000. Wow. And that, that's not even my two starter batteries. Those are just my house batteries alone, just to power the stuff in the house, in the coach. $6,000. And they only last me about three or four years. Well, just look at the price of batteries for your tools. I mean, you, you buy oh, a, a yeah. drill set, that, and you need to, a battery, but a new set that is, is a few bucks more than just a battery alone. Like it doesn't make sense to replace the battery on a, a piece of equipment or a tool. Just buy a, a new, new everything. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you know what I can see already? We're talking about this battery issue and recycling. I've only been doing the power, electric power tool things, battery operated for a couple of years. I've got batteries everywhere already. I have so many batteries, I can't keep track of them anymore. Yeah, what do you do with them? Uh, exactly. You, you recycle some. And I, I'm just now on some of my power tools, and some of these tools are probably four or five years old. The batteries are shot. I mean, I have an 18-volt series of DeWalt, and all of my 18-volt batteries are shot. And now they've moved on to 20-volt for everything. And there are places that, or you can rebuild them yourself if they have a, you know, the standard, uh, what is it, the... 185 60 batteries you can rebuild them yourself but like pete saying like by the time you buy it you tear it apart and put it back together <laughs> so if that's considered recycling then what happens to all the old little cells they had in there that make up the battery and that's where all the nasty but, chemicals are so that's the stuff i have to figure out how to get rid of so are these recycling plants like re recycling plants or are they rebuilding plants you know what I mean? I think they're probably going to be rebuilding plants. I would think they're probably going to take the old stuff out and figure out how to maybe we can find some use for it or at least get rid of it where it's not going to kill us all. And then they're probably taking some of the components and making new batteries. Yeah, I want to know how they really recycle when you have, let's say, just even a small little rechargeable battery, just a small cell. Right. How do you take that battery and turn it back into something useful? You probably don't. We're probably just throwing them away. Yeah. I feel like these recycling plants are just rebuilding plants. Probably. But I don't know. Yeah. All right. Let's grab another call. Let's go to Georgia this time. Charlie, welcome to the program. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Good. What's on your mind today? I, well, I sent emailed some pictures to Angie of my head gasket that I was told to explode. Can bear, a couple of the can bearings and a couple of the injectors with over a million miles on it. Now, I sent the same email, same pictures last week to Bruce. I don't know if he forwarded them to Pete or not. I got it. But I'm trying to get someone to explain to me where that head gasket explode at. They're telling me it's flowed between the number one and number two cylinder where the two bolts comes down through. 
and they're Pete, saying, Go ahead. Pete, you look, you look at that. When we see a blown head gasket, it's usually burnt all the way through. That doesn't yeah. look bad to me. But the, here's what they were looking at. They said that when this truck sits for 24 hours, they take the radiator cap off. There's still pressure in the radiator. Well, that's supposed to be pressure in the radiator. Anytime you take a rad cap off, if it's a 7-pound or 10-pound or 14-pound, there's going to be that much pressure in there. Now, on this radiator cap or... Uh, reservoir cap, whichever you want to call it, it actually states on there pressurized system 15 PSI. So if there's no leaks, isn't that system going to hold 15 pounds of pressure for until you take the cap off if there's no leaks? Correct. But I'm, like I say, I'm still trying to figure out where that head case gets played at. Yeah, I couldn't see and with the you know picture we have. I couldn't tell. Or it didn't look like a blown head gasket from what I could tell. Well, I told him to save the head gasket, so I'm going to get better pictures uh, when I can. I won't move stuff around. When I go in to look at parts that was took out of the engine, I will not touch anything. Because every mechanic or technician has a certain way they put each piece that they take out. I'm not about to move anything or disturb anything and mess them up when they go to put it back together. So I just took pictures of it laying there where they had it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, and, it's obvious when, when you get a blown head gasket. You're just not seeing it there. Now, the cam bearings, yes, we're putting new ones in. I will not let anyone put a head back on my truck without replacing cam bearings. Do they look like they got excessive wear? Should the cam look good from what I was looking at on the cam? And that cam's got almost 2 million miles on it. And how many miles from these bearings? Uh, 707,000. Yeah. I mean, obviously you're going to want to replace them, but I'm not seeing anything that's really any concern. I mean, the one's showing a little copper, but for 700,000 miles, I would say it's perfectly normal where what I'm seeing in the picture you sent me with the two bearings. Okay. And six of the, the there's only one that's showing the copper. The rest of them all looks pretty much the same. So that's why I didn't take the time. I could only put two or three pictures to an attachment. No, that's I fine. guess because of my phone. Yeah. Yeah. Now we, we got the what about the injectors? You think I still got more life out of them with a million, maybe 7,000 on them? You did good on a set of injectors, that's for sure. I don't know if there's much. Well, they're going back in. They're going back in because it hasn't dropped one yet. And you're getting so, the fuel mileage. So that's a good indication that the injectors are fine is the fact that the fuel mileage is good. Yes. Now, I've been running the catalyst forever, and I was always running what they call an FPF fuel injection cleaner in there after they got out of warranty. 
And now I'm running the Lucas upper cylinder loop, uh, two quarts. Well, it's about a gallon to every 800 gallons. Because when I started using it, Bruce told me to uh, cut it in half to what the bottle said. But I, like yeah. I say, I'm not saying where that head gasket is blowed because it's the whole pressure and it's not pushing anything out the overflow tube. But if I remember correctly, and I didn't really pay attention, it's my own fault. Generally, when I put coolant in that, I don't use a funnel. So there's always something that comes out the overflow tube. The last two times I put coolant in there, I don't, don't remember any coolant coming out the overflow tube. And that's supposed to, as you're loosening that cap, isn't that supposed to relieve the pressure so it don't bubble coolant out? Or am I thinking wrong? Yeah, the overflow tube. Is that supposed to, as you're loosening up that cap, is that supposed to relieve the pressure from the, from the reservoir without blowing coolant? It'll vent it, yes, correct. Okay, so if it's choked up and it's not venting, that's what's causing it to uh, bubble the coolant out about two foot in the air. Because it's not relieving any of the pressure until you get the cap off, correct? I just want to make sure I'm thinking correctly. Correct. Yeah, you are thinking correctly. Okay. I mean, it's too, it's too late now. They got it apart, so it's going back together with a new head gasket. It's just, uh, I think it was a waste of time. And yes, I'm putting a new air compressor on because I was thinking if it has a pinhole in the head gasket on the air compressor, Whatever air is in my tanks is pushing through that cooling system because it's more pressure in the tanks than what it is in the cooling system. So I replaced that. I replaced that because it's been, I'm thinking that's where my oxidation and my oil is coming from because the air compressor very seldom kicks off because it builds a hundred. Yeah, running a whole lot. Like, uh, eight out of 10 hours of runtime a day and might pop it off three times in a, in a 10 hour period of driving. It usually sets at 125, but she won't pop until she gets to 150. Yeah, you really don't need to be that high, 150 pounds. I know. Uh, so I'm trying to get him to change the regulator. I could get, nobody would do anything with the regulator. Once I put the new air dryer on, and it's been doing that for four years. Yeah, so some of the, because um, you were getting, what, copper in your oil analysis? Yeah, a small, a small bit of copper. And my lead has escalated to 52, but then I changed a different place on the, where I pulled it from the engine instead of the bypass, and it went down to six. I was hoping, but they, they're going to change the oil. So I'm going to have to run two weeks and drop the oil out that they're putting in. So it's going to be another two months before I can get a 30,000-mile sample 
to see if it's the bypass filter where I'm pouring it is causing a contaminated sample or if I actually do have a lead problem. Because I'm not sure where, like we discussed before, and I know Bruce don't want to go back and look to the 8th, February the 18th of 2022, but that's where the bearing pictures went to the same email that I used the other day, but it dates all the way back to February the 18th. I sent him the picture of the main bearings that came out. Oh, sorry, Pete had to step out there for a second. But, uh, yeah, I haven't seen the pictures, so. Bruce, have you seen the pictures from February 18th, or? Yeah. From February 18th? Of 2022. What do you think of them pictures, Kevin? You're looking at the same pictures that, uh, Pete and them's looking at right now as far as the head gauge, get the can bearings and the injectors. What's your input on it? Uh, I'm not looking at the pictures. I, I I just got caught. I was doing something totally different because I thought oh, Pete had this. Okay. So I have no idea what we're talking about I, right at the moment. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I sent him to Hagen's. He got him over to you. That way you were able to look at the same pictures while we were talking. Yeah. I didn't mean to get you in trouble. Sorry, Kevin. Yeah, yeah these, these these guys had it handled, so I was off working on something else. So I have no idea what we're talking about right now. And then Pete oh, sneaks okay. out, and, and now I'm the one on the spot here. <laughs> I like to say, we've looked at a lot of blown head gaskets, and we're not seeing where this one's blown. I've looked at two on that particular engine. The first one I had high potassium and sodium raining for three months and watched it climb before I rebuilt. It was blowed number one cylinder towards the water jacket. And I got uh, cooling in my oil. That's why I boarded the park the very first time. Second time, I didn't see the head gasket. It popped the head bolt build a cylinder full of coolant, which we got it started, and I got it back to uh, the shop, and they fixed it under warranty. The third time, number four cylinder started rocking back and forth and flattened the firing ring. Didn't put no coolant in the cylinder, but it sure put a lot of pressure out in the coolant system. You said this head gasket has, what, 785,000 miles on it? 707. 707. 700, 700 and, yeah, 707,000 because it was a million 180 when that head gasket went on. There's a million 887 on the truck now. Okay. So think about that. There's a lot of miles on that block that's never been resurfaced. That head gasket's done its job. It lives a pretty violent life. You know, you and I talked about that. I, I told you that whenever yes, you're pulling did. a mountain, yes, a, head, a head almost wants it's trying to lift the head right off the block. So, 
Okay. Do we have anything I else on this one? Doesn't sound like it. I think all my questions was answered. I appreciate that. All right. We're going to move on. The calls are piling up. We're going to head off to Texas this time. Gary, welcome to the program. Hey, Gary, you got to come closer to your phone. You sound like you're on the other side of the room. How's that? There we go. Yeah. That is much better. Let's see. I sent you an oil sample, and it's kind of it's kind of scary. Let's see what we got here. So we're looking at a Cat thirty four oh six E. What year? It's a ninety nine. Hey, it is Pete back yet? I am. Hey, we need to put some pressure on um, the labs to put a year on the form. It'd be nice to know what year without asking every okay. time. You know, because, you know, we, we have yeah. 12 sevens that are different yeah. and 14 liters that are different and ISXs that are different based on the year. And I always ask the question because I want to know. Um, it'd be nice if they would just put that on the form. Let's see what we got here then. We're, look, we're looking at... Uh, Holy cow, does this thing really have 1.8 million miles on it? Not on the engine, since the total mileage of the truck, yes. Well, on unit time, what they want you to put there is either the original miles of the engine or the miles since overhaul. Okay, and I thought that's what I did, but maybe I got my unit time mixed up with the whole unit, the whole truck. Yeah, the unit, it's showing me 1.8 million on the engine and 70, almost 74,000 on the oil. Yeah, 74,000 on the oil. How many so on the, the engine? Time, next time I need to change that. Last uh, last sorry, time it last time it looked like you had 800 and some thousand and now it looks like 1.8 you you put a million okay, you put a million miles on it since June. Yeah, there's one point <laughs> eight on the whole truck. Got it. And, okay. Uh, it was overhauled at about a million. Okay, so we're right at about eight hundred thousand on on this overhaul, and right. so here's kind of the interesting thing. Um, there's no fuel dilution to speak of. Three and a half is nothing. Your your viscosity hasn't dropped, so we know there's no fuel dilution to speak of. Your soot is really low. There's no contaminants in this oil. There's nothing in this oil that should hurt anything. Um, your silicon numbers are really low. There's no coolant. There's no fuel. Um, the oil's in beautiful shape, but we're starting to see wear metals. And it's the same thing. It's the cam and the bearings, or not the cam, but the, the rod main bearings, because we started to see lead climb last time up to 10. This time it climbed up to 33. Copper's been going up slowly. Yeah. Uh, how's this thing doing on oil consumption? It really doesn't you. I think the last 2050 and, seven, and uh, 75, I think I put in three gallons, possibly four. Okay. Since in how long? 
in this in this cycle. Mile mark. Oh yeah. This. So yeah, in this cycle. So I wonder if we're going to start seeing more and more patterns like this. This is almost what we were just trying to deal with with uh, Charlie's truck. You know, bearings. Why are we wearing out bearings? We we hardly ever do that. There has to be a problem. Um, the blocks, you know, warped the cranks bent uh, but in this case i would think that i would just probably pull the pan down and maybe roll a set of bearings into it at some point um pete bruce you guys we are we just asking for problems if we just keep putting bearings in these engines what does it cost anymore to put a set of bearings in well it um yeah, I mean, the prices, I, I don't see that. We seldom do bearings in itself. You know, you'd obviously have a pan gasket, oil filters, the bearings, labor. I mean, I would say now you're probably upwards of $1,500 to do a set of bearings. And you're like, that, yes. That's not bad, though. Uh, where the problem lies, it's not horrible. If the you have wear and it's even wear, then it's not a problem. If we have wear... And it's uneven. Um, you know, one decent, two is horrible, three is worn on the front, four is on the back where it's a live or a crank issue. Then we're kind of wasting our money because you just bought yourself a little bit of time. But if the, you know, it's just simply, I mean, bearings where they're supposed to. Um, but if they're even, then that takes care of the problem. I feel yeah, like they're hardly so, ever even, though. And that's kind of what I'm, um, Mike. They're getting older. I'm getting a lot more my concern is at 800,000 miles, we normally don't see bearing wear. And when we see it jump, that's not you know, at some point there was part of failure. Yeah, so. You know, if you would have had oil or fuel in the oil, there could affect yeah, I mean, I'm looking, you know, I've got oil samples going back almost a year um, and nothing occurred that would have caused any kind of wear metals. There was never any contamination that would cause it. There wasn't any silicon. So when I see this lead jump like that, I, I think that that's not, you're, we're probably not going to see even wear. My guess is when lead jumps up that fast, we're probably going to see pretty uneven wear. I, I, we probably have a couple spots where it's wearing off excessively. What is the number on the lead? Uh, it's 33. It was 10 last time, three the time before that. So that's a quick climb, three to 10 to 33 in just a couple months. So I'm almost wondering at some point, are we just looking at these engines and saying, you know, you're, you're either going to do an auto frame on this thing to get it right, or, you know, is it really worth just throwing bearings in it? If it doesn't burn oil, I would probably pull the bearings down and put a set in. I, I might try at least one. I mean, 1500 isn't that much. It would buy you enough time that it. I, I think it would be worth it to do it once right. and see if the problem comes back. Pete, that price seems low because you have an oil change involved. You've got a day's labor. That seems, seems pretty darn reasonable to me. I don't know what cat bearings cost. Now, uh, I'd have to get Brian on that one. Here's the other thing. Since this is totally 
you know, elective. We do this when we want. It's not like it's broken. We have to fix it. Clearly, I wouldn't wait until I, I, I would wait until I needed an oil change anyway. And then I would do it. And then at least I'm not wasting the cost of the oil change. Well, what I did on this, this weekend, I panicked when I saw this. And I said, I've got to get that oil out of there. So I did do an oil change on it. Okay, so let let me educate you. I know these wear metals look scary because they're pointing out, you know, major problems. When we see lead, we've got a bearing problem. If we see iron, we've got an upper cylinder problem. So we, we get worried when we see these, but you never have to get so worried you have to pull the oil right out. The, this, the wear metals can go really, really high, and the, they're so fine that they really don't cause any damage. So the, the wear metals themselves being in the oil doesn't really bother me, even when they're elevated. It's just what is it telling us that's going on? So honestly, if you change the oil already, I would just I would at least get my money out of this oil change and then do it all at once. We're, we're, we're not really hurting anything right now. You're just wearing out bearings, but it's not like we're hurting anything. Okay, good. So what about the iron? It jumped up quite a bit. Is that just goes along with all from this? what to what? Uh, the iron go from what to what? So here's the same history. So the last three, it, well, here's the all four. Let's go back to lead. If we go four oil samples back, we had one, then three, then 10, then 33. If we go back on the iron, four samples, we had 25, then 36, then 59, then 108. So we did get a 59 on the last one was exactly where I would expect it to be because you had about 50,000 miles on the oil. Wear metals build up over time. Yeah. So we just want them to build yeah. up at a reasonable rate. And if they do, like I said, it doesn't even bother me that it's in there. But when you jump from 59 to 108 on oh, about 23,000 miles, that seems a little excessive. Um, it seems to me like if we're wearing bearings, couldn't there be some iron components in there that are wearing or no? Why don't you do a, a ten or fifteen thousand mile sample and and give Pete and I a call and let's talk about it? I think that's a good idea. You've okay. got fresh oil in it right now. I think that's a good approach. Yeah, uh, do a fifteen thousand and do a sample. You have a bypass here? I do. Yes. Do you have any type of bypass filtration? Okay. Yes, I've got the old OPS. Good. Good. Okay. Good. Yeah, I think that's a good approach. You've got fresh oil in it. Let's run it out to about, you know, twelve or 15,000 and pull a sample. Okay. Sounds good to me. And uh, the other one they flagged is the base. And I don't know exactly. To me, when I hear the word base, that sounds like what makes your oil thick. So no. what is base? So here's what base is. Base is basically an antacid. No different than you get a case of heartburn and you take an antacid to neutralize the acid. That's what base does. As a matter of fact, you could take Tums, the same thing we would take for heartburn, crush it up, put it in your oil. It does the same thing base does. 
it, it neutralizes acid. So the reason we have that is because during the combustion process, you're creating acids. And those acids then will attack the metals. So we need to neutralize the acid. Base does that and then base depletes. So as the base has to neutralize the acid, we use up the base. And then we have to put more base in. When you're doing regular oil changes, there's enough base in there that we never see it go low. If you're changing your oil every 50,000, you're probably never going to see low base. Um, you've got an older engine that produces more acid than the new engines do, and you're at 70 some thousand miles, and you're not putting in a lot of makeup oil. See, we used to put in enough makeup oil that we'd add base back, but now the cylinder kits are getting so tight, we're not burning oil anymore, so we're not putting base back in. So when we try to run extended drains, we end up with low base. And that can be a problem. Yours is, I think, borderline. Let me go back and look at it. Uh, 2.50. That's the line. We really don't want it going any lower than that. The good news is we don't have to think about it right now. You changed your oil. That took care of it. For everybody else listening, what we do, if we have an engine that's nice and tight, it's not using oil, we're doing extended drains and it's working, our oil is nice and clean, we're saving a lot of money, you're going to have to start adding base. And there's two ways you can do it easily. Uh, There's three ways. The old school way we used to just drain some oil out and put another gallon or two back in. That now seems to me to be very wasteful. It's time consuming. We're throwing away good oil. You can spin on a luber finer filter that has base built into it, or you can buy a base additive from Hotshot Secret and just add it to your oil. And there's even instructions on there. If your base is this number, add this much to bring it back up to this number. Does that make sense? Okay. Sounds good. Yep. There you go. So I think we got a plan. Yeah, I'll do that full sample. It uh, then get a hold at fifteen thousand, then get a hold of Bruce. Perfect. And uh, or whatever. Yeah. All right. Sounds like a plan. We'll uh, we'll hear back from you here soon. Let's go to Texas. Sam, welcome to the program. Hey guys, how you doing? I got a. I got a question for Bruce. Um, I've got a, uh, T600 with the six NZ cat and uh, dual stacks. Anyway, when I first got the truck, I, I was getting decent mileage pulling my empty trailers. I, I'm a power only operation. So I pull haul a lot of empty trailers, but if I put any weight on that at all, sometimes I'll haul a stack of chassis or a loaded moving van and it, the truck would just fall in its face fuel mileage wise. Um, I just figured that the combination of my cat engine and my overdrives and gears, but anyway, I, I put a new set of mufflers on it cause they were rusted out. The mufflers that were on there were rusted out fleet guards. So literally they were empty cans and I put on the new Pittsburgh power mufflers and immediately my fuel mileage was more consistent. And higher. I my ninety day average is over eight now, eight point oh three. It's gone up three quarters of a mile per gallon from my old 
ninety day average. I, I'm just curious, what on earth does mufflers have to do with the power or fuel mileage? Well, first of all, your old mufflers were very restrictive. They were loaded with soot and they were all rusted out inside. So you have an open chamber. So when that exhaust enters there, it's not given any direction and the exhaust is stupid. It needs to be directed. So you're creating a lot of turbulence inside the muffler. The mufflers that we designed, and we, we did that uh, back in the late 80s, I think that was. We studied flow, and we kept the flow going, but yet we have an opening in there that's about two inches to allow the sound to get out into the muffler part, and then we have a cone that brings the exhaust back together and out the stack, and that's why you gain that um, fuel mileage. Yeah, I, I was I was really amazed when I, when I looked in the old mufflers, and they were literally empty cans. And mm-hmm. I immediately started seeing differences, good differences. And I, I, I looked over my 90 average. I'm on fuel gauges, and it's over eight. Okay, this is not an aerodynamic truck. It's it's a T600, but it's got stacks and an ARI sleeper. And but anyway, I, I just every I tell everybody I put these mufflers on, and my mileage is, I mean, significantly higher. Anyway, well, like the very the very first one that I built went on a cab over international single stack big cam three fifty. We had some fuel turned to it. The guy was from Toronto. He'd go by our old shop once a week, and he would stop in. And we took his muffler off, put that muffler on. A week later, he pulls into the parking lot. I walk out. And, and he just opened his door and spun around in the seat and put his elbows on his knees. And he said, you wouldn't believe the difference that muffler made. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, and anyway, that was the start. Uh, that was the very start of us designing our own mufflers. Yeah. Um, these and it's all, it's old, it's old race car technology too. I mean, that's, that's where the, uh, False manifold for the big can comes on the big. You can see straight through there. The the mufflers I got are not the chambered ones, or you can see straight through them, and it's like a spiral. Um, that's that's the ones I I bought, um, and they sound good. They don't sound loud. They just sound good. Um, right. My other my other thing I wanted to say was my biggest fuel mileage gain that I have done because I I listen to your show and I do everything I can was you teaching me how to drive by my boost gauge. By far, that was my biggest fuel mileage bump. And it was free. Just had to listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, if you don't have a boost gauge, the kit's $102. I mean, it's... That's uh, right. <laughs> and isn't it amazing how many times you're going up a grade and you don't really think it and you, as you're looking out across that hood? And then you got a T600, so the hood slopes, so it's even harder to tell. And how many times if it's late at night and you're tired and you're using more boost than you should be and it's telling you it's time to climb the next bunk. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and it also tells you Kevin, if something's wrong, if you uh, you got a tire issue or a brake dragging. That I, oh, yeah. I don't know if I ever mentioned one time I had my first enclosed snowmobile trailer. I was 
pulling with my 89 Dodge Cummins and I had a lot of fuel turned to it. And I passed a friend of mine that had the 6.2 Chevy Suburban diesel and I'm just cranking up this hill about 75 miles an hour coming down uh, 28 off of uh, Mount New Bethlehem. And, but I'm, I'm looking at my boost gauge and I'm saying, something's wrong. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'm tired. And I said, something's wrong. This is, it's taken seven more pounds of boost than it normally does. And then all of a sudden I see sparks. Not only had I lost the tire, I ran it and I drug it until the wheel was wore away and I wore into the hub. And my boost gauge was telling me something was wrong and I ignored it. That was the last time I ignored the boost gauge. And that's why it's so important to know how many pound of boost it normally takes you to go up the same hill each time. Yeah. Then I had a real mess in my hand, so. Did that, I had I had my truck in your shop before the new mufflers, and my, my uh, readings on the dyno were a bit off. Um, I had a good 550 horsepower, but my torque was relatively low. Um, it was like 1,500 or so, and for this... Uh, cat should have been a little higher. That's possibly what the problem was, was uh, the mufflers? Sure. Okay. Everything, everything works in unison, you know, from the time the air comes in through the air filter, through the turbo, out through the manifold, through the turbine housing and out the muffler. And that's why our ported and ceramic coated muffler and our HP cat turbos work so well. But if you you can put certain items on, but you got to do them all. And when you do them all, the end result's phenomenal. Yeah, it's all on my list. Anyway, thanks a lot, guys. I love your show. And uh, Thanks for, thanks for calling in about the mufflers. That was a great report. <laughs> yeah. I had another guy with an N14 single stack and stock muffler. And he came to pick up one of my Harleys and take it to Colorado for me. And then I met him in Colorado while, when, while he was in at the shop when we were down in Harmerville. I talked to him about the muffler, and he was a, he was a foreign guy, but he his English was pretty good. And he went home. He lived in Colorado Springs, and he took two of our mufflers, and he made a dual exhaust with two of our mufflers, and he went up a half mile a gallon. Wow. No other changes. Great. Never saw him again either. You'd think, you know, I got you a half mile of the gallon, you'd come back for the next thing. <laughs> you'd think so, huh? <laughs> uh, um, if I somebody gave me a half mile of the gallon, I'd say, what's next? You know? I've had people say, if you gave me a mile of the gallon, I'll be happy. I said, I wouldn't be. If you're at five and I get you to six, that's not worth being happy. You, you want to keep going. Yeah, yeah. I was having an overheating problem, and I, I hate my worst. I hate overheating problems. I do uh, thermostats, and I ordered up a radiator from your shop, and uh, I, you know, I, I don't have an overheating problem anymore. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah, I don't like overheating <laughs> problems either, especially when you're in the mountains and you got to pull over and sit. 
And man. It might have been just thermostats for all I know, but I said, I'm not messing with it. Just throw, I want new stuff. <laughs> now, if, the, if you're five, six, or seven years old on the radiator, then it's it's a bad do. Yeah. And the part that you can't see on a radiator is covered by the shroud, and that's where the salt and the mag chloride gather and eats away at the, the fins. And when the fins are gone, there's nothing to carry the heat out of the tube. All right. Anyway, real, real happy with all the all the products there at your shop, and you guys have never steered me wrong. So well, I drank too late, so to speak. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> who were you in the, when you were on the dyno? Who were you working with? Jr. Leroy, Ty. In the- he was Leroy. He was a pretty big kid, young young guy. Um, they called you. You said he was from the engineering department. Um, that, that would have been Ty Curly Hair. Yeah, yeah, that was Ty. I think so. Yeah. Um. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for the You're call. Welcome. All right. We have blown so through. Kevin, Go ahead, Bruce. Kevin, we, we started the show talking about back pressures and things, and there you go. There, there you it go. is. Yep. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. We well, all- you take a stock muffler and you ram a pipe through it to knock the baffles out, it only makes it worse because it hurts the flow. It creates turbulence inside. And when there's turbulence... Got it. You know, think of the kayaker that's going down the stream. Where does he hide when he needs a rest? He goes behind a rock, and as the water swirling in there, he can sit there and holds him there. And that's exactly what happens in fuel lines. It happens in air piping, and it happens in exhaust. The other thing we've talked about over the years, and it's like most things, there's a bell curve to almost everything. More isn't always better. And we started putting bigger exhaust sizes on because it increased flow. But at a certain point, you get too big and it starts to hurt flow. When you go to eights and tens, it allows the exhaust to cool down, and now it's harder for the engine to push it out. And you one time said that mirrors are lose three tenths of a mile of a gallon. Yeah. What do you think of uh, stacks that are thirteen six tall that are eight and ten inches in diameter? Absolutely. So let's say you took that eight inch stack. You took that eight inch stack and you stood in the back of a pickup truck and you put your left leg forward and your right leg back and you held that stack out to the side and you had your buddy drive your pickup truck down the street. How fast does he have to go before the wind just grabs that pipe and turns you around? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can uh, I can attest wouldn't be, to the, wouldn't be very fast, would it? I can attest to the power of wind these days. It's an incredible force. It's an incredible force. It's scary how much power that wind has. Uh, About six weeks ago, I was out in a sailboat, and the mask is 85 feet tall. And he just had the front sail out, and there was a problem up above. And it was breaking the cable, and... If the cable would have broke through, the mass would have came down, and it probably would have killed Debbie and I. And this, this was getting scary. Yeah. We were in yeah. 20-some knot winds. And now the sail is flopping right to left, right to left. 
And when it's 85 feet tall and it's flapping like that, you are not strong enough to grab that rope to try to hold it. Not even and close. Yeah. Then, so the winch, hydraulic winch, had failed. And so now we're up there, the guy's wife and I, and we're hand cranking this sail in, and it's right above our heads. And I mean, it was extremely scary. And you watch those ropes snapping, and Ooh. it's like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah. That was my last time on that sailboat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of, that's actually what I'm learning how to do. I'm learning how to sail. I mean, I that foil is just yes, like kind of like a keel on a sailboat. The the wing is really a sail. I mean, I'm using it more like a sail than mm-hmm. a wing. They call it a wing, but we're turning it into the wind in a way that it acts more like a sail. And then I have to figure out how to work with or against the wind. I can tack. A, you can actually. This always kind of baffled my mind. How can the wind be blowing one direction, but I can use that wind to go the opposite direction the wind can be blowing straight west but i can use that wind to move east that's because of the position of the sail i mean it's uh, back in the early 70s we used to rent club sailboats at lake moraine north of butler right off the 422 and 79 it was four dollars an hour <laughs> and it would hold four people and you get the you get the feel the how the wind would come into it and how it would turn and and it's all in the field holding the sail and holding the rudder and uh, it was it was interesting so that's the exact same thing we're doing now the rudder and the keel on the mm-hmm. sailboat was allowed what was what allowed the force of the wind for you to change the direction it was taking you uh and that's the same thing i'm doing now i'm holding the wing which is the sail and my foil is just like the keel and you're doing the same thing on this here's the crazy thing bruce you'll you'll appreciate this we're i'm used to you know slalom skiing all those years i'm used to nice big comfortable soft boots on the ski right Mm-hmm. On this board, there's no boots, no straps. The only people that use any kind of foot straps are the, you know, the crazy guys doing freestyle flips and that kind of stuff. Most of the people out there on these foil boards don't use any anything to hold your feet on the board. You just stand on the board. It's bizarre to me. Oh. Wow. Isn't, I don't and, like that idea. And I, I'm, I'm watching people I, I get air big air while they do this and i'm thinking how do their feet stay on the board when they do that wow yeah no you know sailing no boots you're just standing on the very mechanical thing yeah that's a very mechanical thing because it's all in feel owner operators would be good sailors because a lot of them have the feel for that truck and that piece of equipment. And when you're sailing, it's the same thing. It's all in the feel. If you want to read a really good book, it's actually about sailing, but it's more of a life lesson book. I, one of my favorites, uh, it's called first, you have to row a little boat. And the story is this guy wanted to learn how to sail. And he went to this really experienced sailor and said, I want you to teach me how to sail. And basically he said, okay, but first, 
before you ever touch a sail, you have to learn how to row a little boat. And he puts him in a boat out on the ocean. So he can start to learn the currents and all that other stuff. But the book really is about, he takes every lesson of how you sail, you know, you use the wind for this, and he turns that lesson into a life lesson. So it's a really interesting book. But you also learn about sailing. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Here's the other weird thing about this like foil. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the other weird thing about this foil that's really making it difficult for me. I thought all my time skiing was actually going to be some benefit. It's almost like a negative. Not being used to just standing on a board, not having the boots is weird. The other thing is on this foil, it's your front foot that controls everything. Hmm. I think you ought to put some boots on it. (laughs) (laughs) I do. There's some people that just put a couple, you know, little straps. You slide your feet under the straps. That would even that would help. Just standing on this board is just weird. And the other thing is with a ski or even a wakeboard that has boots or straps, you're always putting your feet back in the exact same position. So you start to get used Mm -hmm. to riding that board in that position. When you're trying to learn this and you don't have any boots or straps, hell, I'll look down. My feet are all over this board. No wonder why I can't figure out how to steer this thing. I'm never standing in the same place. They have at least take a video Put oh, it on Facebook. Yeah. We'd love to see your learning, your learning process. No videos till I get better at this. This is just ugly right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. I know we're just talking about all kinds of stuff. That's because we're out of calls. So I was waiting to see if a couple more came in. Um, anybody else have anything they want to close with? Oh, go ahead, Bruce. When I was sailing, I was in dispatch with Bankcard Heavy Hall back in the early 70s in Pittsburgh. And they gave me five sick days. I'd never had sick days in my life. It was the only job I had, sick days. Well, I don't really get sick. And I'd rather go to work if I don't feel good. <laughs> but I took all five sick days each year and would go sailing up in Marine State Park. There you go. Interesting. Well, I, I've kind of decided that for right now, um, every day that I can go um, winging, I'm going. I, I work and wait. Um, I've got big projects I'm working on, but I want to get as much time in as I can before the season ends so I don't feel like I'm starting all over again next spring. Mm-hmm. That's right. So uh, okay. I, ju- I just looked. The, the wind sucks today, so I won't be out there today. Tomorrow <laughs> looks like it might get better. <laughs> I think I'm about to become an expert on well, wind how many patterns. not How many not winds do you want? 20 with the with the wing i've got Ooh, right now lot. yeah with the wing i've got right now it's a it's a smaller wing not real small it's kind of middle of the road 15 knots is where i've been and i can get up on the board and and if i were better i'd be get, able to get up on the foil in 15 knot winds but that's like bare minimum and and you're just struggling if i were good it wouldn't be a big deal right now it's just not enough wind and i'm struggling 20 would be nice and I, who knows, maybe I'll, if, if I, if it starts to pick up a little later this afternoon, I might go buy a bigger wing. I'm going to need one anyway. Most people keep okay. three, three wings, a, a small one. You, for have, some, really you have some good wind apps like 
you have the wind apps like Windy shows you all the winds in North America. It shows you all the winds all over the world, actually. I have one. Do you have any of those apps? I have one specifically for the Columbia River Gorge. I mean, it gives me a visual. You know what's surprising? What I didn't realize is, you know, you think if you hear, oh, today we have 20 knot winds. Well, and in some places, that's probably a pretty consistent 20 knots over the whole area. You look at this app and the first, you know, 100 yards from the shore, the wind's only 10 knots. And then out in the middle of the channel, it's 22 knots. And then there are spots where it's 50. It, it's yeah. really not consistent at all. It's all over the board. Mm-hmm. That's right. If you have a mountain in in your way, that'll cut it down. Everything cuts it down. Land slows it down. Wind really picks up its momentum over water. Yeah, my my thought was going to be that if I know we're going to have 20 knot winds today, I can just go out and go boarding. But you have to know where those 20 knot winds are. And it might be just two miles away from here. Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, looks like we've got a question. So I said we'd take it. We'll grab it. Let's go to California. Larry, welcome to the program. Thank you, Kevin. Um, and, and Bruce can chime in, although this is mostly a business question. Um, I have just been given an opportunity uh, to buy my truck outright. I don't lease up, and it's a 19 Cascadia, uh, 506,000 miles on it. I've had it since day one, and I've taken really good care of it. Um, I, the, the preface to my questions is that I'm getting ready to retire. Uh, I'm retiring out of country. Like I can do it as soon as uh, as soon as I sell the truck, <laughs> uh, basically. Um, so I was which, given a price. Which country? Which country are you going to to retire? Philippines. Okay. okay. Social Security will take care of me very well there, uh, plus my savings. But uh, the price on the truck is at 19 Cascadia, uh, Aero, uh, 216 rear, um, super singles, etc. cetera, um, 38000 Ooh. Oh, it sounds like an awesome price. Now, How many miles? Now, 506000 as we speak. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those I'd, I'd have to probably take advantage of it and buy it as soon as you possibly can. A couple other questions. Have you been tracking all of your other numbers since you've had this truck? Yes. So what's Absolutely. your... Absolutely. I, I use ATBS. I Good. track my Good. fuel. You can look me up on the fuel, but um, I can't get to it right now because I'm driving. But. That's okay. Roughly, what is your fuel economy? Lately, it's been really bad because of the heat. I've been idling the shit out of it. Okay. Um, but basic, basically, I'm I'm running between seven, eight, and and eight five. Oh, that's fine. On yeah, regular that, averages. And, that, I, and, I, and I have I have days where I get nine, ten miles a gallon too. Yeah, absolutely. Then that that's we don't worry about that at all. Maintenance cost. Do you know a number per mile? Now you're going to make me open up the app to look. I don't know if I should be doing that right now, but um, 
this year has been high because I replaced all tires. Okay. Super singles and stairs. And I did my 500,000 mile service. Yeah. And I replaced yeah. a, a DPF. Okay. I mean, I had a big year this year on, on uh, maintenance costs. Yeah, that's, that, all of that stuff is expected at that mileage, yeah. They actually said I was about a hundred thousand miles beyond what they're used to seeing right. on the DPS. Yeah, yeah, that's was that on. Yeah, you got Fuel plenty out. of miles out of that. I, I I would say I look, here's the other way you could approach this. You could go log into truckpaper.com, do a detailed search. There's a button there for detailed search. Put in you can put in every spec on this truck engine transmission horsepower tire size i mean you can put everything in there and then hit search that's going to bring up all the trucks that are almost identical to yours my guess is that prices have been all over the board they're still pretty high though i mean the the truck prices have come down they haven't come down as much as i thought they would have by now um but they have come down my guess is you're going to find trucks that are similar to yours that are probably double that. Right. So you have two options. One, if you buy it and keep it, it's a, it's a, it's, it's the best truck you could buy. You already know it. You have all the history with it. It's performing well. Fuel mileage is good. Maintenance cost is fine. And you're going to get a great price on this truck. You'd be crazy not to buy it. Even if you said, look, I don't want to do the whole owner operator thing. um, I'd buy it and resell it. And that's my thing. I mean, I can stay leased on to the company as well. And you should. I I mean, if you're happy there. Yeah. Transaction. Yeah. And I can run it for another eight, 10 weeks, whatever. And when winter hits, say, I'm selling them my tire socks. <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah. You, um, yeah. No, I, I don't see how you could go wrong with this one, really. Okay. And the thing is, one of the questions is, how the hell do I sell it? Um, that is actually the more right, difficult part out. to this. It is it is more difficult for an individual to sell a truck than a dealer because dealers have all kinds of financing arrangements and you don't. You can right. sell it, but you have right. to have somebody, you have to find a buyer that has strong enough credit to finance a truck on their own. And how do you do it? You could advertise it in truck paper or Facebook marketplace, or there's all kinds of places that it's easy to advertise it. It's a matter of finding the right buyer that's able to buy from an individual. Right. And do some of these truck centers buy out, right? Or... Consigned? There are a few around. Yeah, you can find them that do consignment. There aren't that many that buy outright, but I've seen a couple here and there. And, and now, all, now also know that, that when you do consignment or, or you know, you sell it outright to a dealer somewhere, you're getting wholesale price. You're going to get the lowest price that truck will ever sell for. Right. But in this case, if you keep it nice and keep it shiny and well maintained and you have a book and records of everything you've done to it, you'll have no trouble selling it. Okay, and I do. I I have all of that information. Yeah. 
All yeah, you got to do is come on this show and talk about right. it right now like you have, and it'll be gone. Yeah. It'll be gone in a week. Good point. Very good. But I'd like you to call me tomorrow. Let's see. Uh, okay. Um, actually, I'm going to be driving tomorrow. If you called me tomorrow morning, say around 9 o'clock, I'd like to talk to you about about your retirement. Okay. Sounds good. 9 o'clock Eastern? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, I'll be working okay. in an hour. I'm okay. out west. But yeah. Sounds good. Okay. All, All right. right. Sounds good. Thanks hey, for the Kevin, call. Sometimes yeah. these lease, sometimes these lease ops do okay. Shh! Don't tell anybody that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we have to keep that a secret, Larry. Right. Come on, don't be telling everybody. Hey, I I, I don't necessarily push leasing, <laughs> but sometimes it, they do okay. Sometimes they do. You got to do all the right stuff. So obviously, you've done a lot of right stuff. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. You're welcome. Thanks for your call. Hey, Bruce, I just got some advice on the whole uh, ski thing, uh, the board thing from uh, Vic, Vic and Sarah. So Vic was a uh, professional surfer. So what he said was, I need booties. And I do have booties, by the way. They're like uh, the same material your wetsuit's made Uh out of. And you know the the weird thing about these booties? They they actually have a spot for your big toe is separate from all your other toes. Interesting. Yeah. It's kind of uncomfortable when you first put it on, cause you've got something in between your toes there, but it's actually because you need that little bit of flexibility with your big toe to be able to hold on to the board better. Mm-hmm. So Vic said, get booties. Wow. And then he sent me a picture of this stuff called sex wax, the best for your stick. So I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this stuff. I hope it comes with instructions. Uh, but he says with booties and sex wax, I'll be all set. Yeah. The wax is making it so you stick to the board. Must be. Yeah. Must be. Remember. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, good luck. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, hopefully I'll get out here in the next couple of days, get my board back or my my wing back, or maybe I'll just go buy another one. We'll see. All right. Looks like we're going to wrap this up. Calls are all done. We're done. We will see you back. Oh, by the way, I'm not doing a uh, an episode of The Pit today. Um, I took all weekend off the news and I haven't done any research. I have nothing for the pit today. So uh, we're not going to do a show today. I will see you back here tomorrow for Destination Health. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.